All right, welcome to the Trinity Lesson 2, God the Father. Last week we covered our introduction into the Trinity. And uh, like I said, we, as I study this and have been studying it and reading old, old commentaries and old theologians, because nobody writes on this stuff anymore. We're too busy telling the church how awesome they are as they march off into the hell of convenience. Nobody currently writes on this stuff. I just have to throw that out there. The newest thing I'm studying is from the 1950s or 60s. And that's just the foundations of Pentecostal theology. Uh, that's not even that new of a book. Nobody's currently writing on this or dissecting it or studying it or probably even teaching it. But it is a critical foundational doctrine. And so we want to understand it better. Uh, I've never taught it in depth. We always kind of allude to it. And so it's always good to slow down and see what the Bible has to say about our God. So let's look at our lesson here. The Trinity has been called the greatest of all divine mysteries. And as I quote one theologian, the central gem of divine revelation. Remember, all persons of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal. That is foundational doctrine. We don't fully understand how that can be. That's why it's called a divine mystery, something that is somewhat hidden. A mystery is that which is hidden, that which is not fully revealed. So we... We understand it as best we can, but we are finite beings. We relate to things in a finite way, in a tangible way. Uh, you can't even try to use chemistry to explain this or physics because it surpasses anything tangible and created. God has not been created. He is, and he is eternally three persons, yet one substance. Any, you get into hardline Trinitarians, and we, though we are Trinitarians, I'm not a hardliner on Trinitarianism. That is, I'm not going to count somebody a heretic if they misapply an example trying to explain the Trinity. Some folks out there are just so full of bitterness and pickle juice that if I were to teach this and misuse a word like substantial or substance or essence and interchange those, they would label me a heretic. And we don't even know the difference between substance and essence in terms of old school theology concerning the Trinity. Amen. I know oneness people who deny the Trinity, but they deny the Trinity because they think the Trinity is teaching three gods and God is but one God. And they love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and they have the Holy Ghost in their services. And I, I view that as they're, they're children like we are of God, and they just don't know the essence of their Father. And what we maybe know a little bit better about our same Father concerning, they don't. But what we don't know, they probably have an abundance of. So we're not going to go around labeling anybody heretics if they don't use the right word, substance versus essence, tripartite versus Trinitarian, and what the difference between those are. It's exhausting. So let's just study what the Bible has to say. The Trinity, they, the, all persons are co-equal and co-eternal. They're all equal and they're all eternal. This isn't a temporary separation to then be absorbed into each other. These are not three phases like solid, liquid, and gas. Plus there's a fourth phase anyway called plasma. According to the foundations of Pentecostal theology, uh, the author says, because it is a mystery, we do not expect to reduce the Trinity to logical formulas. We can't grasp it. We can only outline it. We can't expect to reduce it to logical formulas any more than we would attempt to transfer the Pacific Ocean into a teacup. <laughs> the best you can do is scoop out a little bit at a time and say, I think I got it. <laughs> All right, you got like 
infinite number of teacups left. Because if you didn't know, the Pacific Ocean touches the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. So by the time you scoop out the Pacific Ocean, it's filled back up again. God did not overtly reveal his Trinitarian nature in the Old Testament. And most theologians and commentaries say this is probably due to the fact that there is polytheism or multiple gods being worshipped all around them. In essence, this was more than Israel could handle. And there's nothing unbiblical about that concept or notion. God has progressively revealed himself to mankind through covenants, through dispensations, so that even as Galatians says, so in the fullness of time, he could reveal himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So even the fullness and the essence of Jesus Christ was not revealed to Adam, was not revealed to Abraham, was not revealed to the prophets or Moses, but has been revealed to us, even as Hebrews says, in these last times, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. As time advanced, God continued to reveal to man more and more of his nature, allowing the nature of the Trinity to appear more clearly. And so it's with the incarnation of Christ and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that the entirety of the Trinity begins to appear overtly. So we'll see here in a moment, when we finally get to the Gospels, we start seeing the Father spoken of over and over and over again. And we, it's, oh, that's not even going to work. I was about to use an example. I thought, nope, somebody's going to label me a heretic for that. I was going to say, it's almost as you enter the Gospels, the Trinity is refracted like through a prism. But then again, we're just splitting up three things, and that's not inaccurate. You hit the Gospels, and God the Father's role, somebody would probably nail me for saying that, God the Father's role begins to stand out. God the Son's role begins to stand out. And then at Pentecost, God the Spirit's role begins to stand out. Now, if we can understand concepts of roles, this presents a doctrine called subordinationism, which is considered a heresy by some. But as we'll look through this, we're going to see very clearly there's things the Father does that the Son does not do. And there's things the Son does that the Father does not do. And then, of course, there's things the Holy Spirit does in the earth that the Son did not do and the Father does not do, yet there are three. So this is why it's a mystery. And you just think, Lord, help me just scratch the surface on this and I'll just worship Jesus and just be a loving, a naive Christian who does my best to understand God. We'll cover subordinationism in uh, our fifth lesson and we'll distinguish what that means and how there is permission for what's called economic substantiationism. It is with the incarnation of Christ and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that the entirety of the Trinity begins to appear overtly. Christ was manifested at Passover. The Holy Ghost was manifested at Pentecost. So even different feasts demonstrate different aspects of the Trinity and their role in mankind. So here's a very famous verse. And so the, our dear brothers in Christ, who I count as brothers and not heretics or apostates, who are oneness people. Oneness means they believe in no trinity. They believe in one, and they believe a doctrine called um, Sabellianism or modalism. It's the same thing, which believes there's one God, but he manifested as the Father in the Old Testament. He manifested as the Son in the Gospel, and he manifests as the Holy Spirit in the Epistles. And you could see how they could come to that conclusion. They will come back to this verse to say, 
there cannot be a trinity because you're dealing that that equates to polytheism and of course they reject that and we should reject polytheism except the mystery of the trinity is not promoting polytheism because all three are worshiped as god so here it is here o israel deuteronomy 6 4 here o israel and this should not surprise us that the lord is saying this to israel as they're surrounded by polytheistic people polytheism means worshiping multiple gods hinduism is the most famous polytheistic it's like the premier. There's never been a more polytheistic religion than Hinduism because they have a billion gods. So when you ask them to worship Jesus, say, hey, why not? What's one more? <laughs> God is telling Israel, having just come out of Egypt, which was polytheistic, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. But there's a nuance there. Because it says, Jehovah, our Elohim, is one Jehovah. Our Lord, singular, is Elohim, plural. Our Jehovah, singular. We covered this last week, that Elohim is plural. But that's the first name God ever ascribes to himself, where in the beginning, Elohim literally means the mighty ones, plural, created the heavens and the earth. And about verse 27, and Elohim said, let us make man in our image. And I made the joke, God does not speak in the third person. He speaks in the three persons. And that, we said, was much funnier than you guys gave me a chuckle over. I just gave you another opportunity and you failed. I may try that joke every one of these teachings until you appreciate how witty your preacher man is. This verse reveals unity and plurality. Unity and plurality is part of what's called the Athanasian Creed, which we'll cover in Lesson 5. Uh, it's a kind of a creed that helps us nail down the doctrine of the Trinity in a formula. This verse, Deuteronomy 6.4, this verse which teaches monotheism as opposed to polytheism still reveals with the word Elohim that God is a little bit more than one. <laughs> it even is hard for me to say that because... We're not polytheistic, but we believe in a trinity. We believe in three persons, yet one essence. As a reminder, Elohim is plural, meaning the mighty ones. And so it says the one true God, our God, are mighty ones. So you just kind of have to sort that out. As a side note, the name Adonai, anybody heard of Adonai? That's also plural. The singular being Adon, meaning master or lords or lord. So Adonai appears over 300 times in the Psalms in the book of prophecy in the plural form. It's used for God or master, Lord. Now when it's used as Lord, it's not capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, like Jehovah. Jehovah, when it's translated, is generally translated in the King James as Lord, and it's all capitalized. When Adonai is translated in the King James, it's capital L, but lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D. But Adonai is plural for master. So you got to sort that out too. Amen. I'm just giving you what has been studied for 2,000 years and what has been concluded by the body of Christ. So the unseen Father, and this is where things, we want to slow down and think about this. I'm willing to debate or discuss anything I say this morning because I think this may be one of the hardest lessons I've ever had to write trying to address the Father because of some of the stuff we're going to see. 
Uh, I study doctrine like a scientist does experiments. We have to look at the evidence available to come to a conclusion. We cannot, uh, there's a theological statement that says you cannot argue from silence. And what that means is if you don't have evidence, you can't say that proves it. It's like, you can't go around saying there's such things as red holes because there's black holes. Well, we've never seen a red hole. Yep, that proves it. <laughs> we can only build doctrine or scientific hypotheses and theories based on the evidence we've been given. And if we're given better evidence, we have to adjust our hypotheses and theories. And if we're given better scripture, we have to adjust our doctrine. So you'll see what I mean because I had to tiptoe through this. I'm saying, oh man, this stretches me. The unseen father, <clears throat> recognizing this one prime characteristic will be helpful in understanding the Trinity. No man has ever seen the father. And I have all the scriptures that say that. All right. So that's established. No man has ever seen the father. Both the son and the Holy Spirit have been seen a lot. Jesus in his earthly ministry and in visions and visitations after his ascension and the Holy Spirit in the burning bush, the cloud by day, the fire by night, in the cloud that filled the temple at the river Jordan as a dove and as tongues of fire at Pentecost. And even to this day, if discerning a spirit is manifested, you might even see the glory cloud roll in. You might see the spirit of God upon people. You might even have a divine theophany with discerning of spirits and the Lord Jesus appear to you. We still believe in visions and trances. I raised Southern Baptist. I, I still keep my finger on the pulse of the Baptists. The Baptists every year pray and teach their people to pray for Jesus to appear to Muslims during Ramadan. So even Southern Baptists believe in theophanies and divine visitations. So long as it's only happening to a Muslim. God forbid Jesus ever appeared to one of his born-again preachers or servants or mothers or fathers in the faith and revealed them to them something other than salvation. Because if that happens, it's a demon. So says the Southern Baptist. And yet they will teach, and I'm all for it, because Jesus Christ is constantly during Ramadan when Muslims who are seeking God are crying out with their heart, God, I want to know you. It's their month of fasting. You hear testimonies all the time of Muslims converting to Christianity because Jesus Christ walks in to their tent or walks into their home, their apartment, their business and says, I am Jesus, the son of God, and you are worshiping a demon. So Jesus is still appearing today. And the Holy Ghost, as we see through visions and trances and um, discerning of spirits. But the father no man has ever seen. The father no man has ever seen. If the Father has never been seen, this automatically implies that every theophany, that means God's appearance, in the Old Testament was the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate. Now here's, here's what that leads me to believe. This is kind of my speculation. And once again, as we teach on this, I'm very mindful of all the hyper-Trinitarians that are willing to label heretic or use the label heretic on anybody that misuses any analogy to try to explain their Trinitarian understanding. If every theophany is the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, which every commentary agrees on, every angel that's worshipped, even the angel that says uh, to um, Joshua, says, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. Now, are you for us or against us? Neither. 
but I am the captain of the Lord's host. But it was, it was Jesus. That would seem to indicate most of the dealings in the Old Testament of God with his people was the son dealing with his people. Because you have a lot of theophanies, a lot of times God is appearing, whether it's on the mountain with Moses and the burning bush with Moses, whether it's Joshua and the captain of the Lord's host, whether it's Gideon and the angel that's worshipped, whether it's the angel appearing to Manoah and his wife about Samson who was in worship, all these examples, the angel wrestling with Jacob and his name is called Jehovah, all of these, the Lord coming to Abraham with the two angels. And here's the other trivia thing. He calls that man with the two angels there in uh, Genesis 18, he calls him Adonai, masters, plural. So I'm telling you, I said last week, we know four things about the Trinity, not much at all. <laughs> so I just kind of want to throw evidence out there and tell you how I'm kind of shaking this thing out and, and just let you sort it out. And when we're all said and done, you just love Jesus, speak in tongues, win the lost, and honor your Father in heaven. Amen. Because <laughs> it's still a divine mystery that we're still trying to wrap our mind around. So if the Father's never been seen, this automatically has to imply that every theophany in the Old Testament was the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate, and we'll look at that in the next lesson. So there are, though, I found in all my studying, Old Testament verses that do distinguish the Father, but as we started off this lesson, it may be the Father did not reveal his Trinitarian nature as overtly here as in the New Testament, because of the polytheism that surrounded Israel in every direction. Generally speaking, and in terms of the Trinity, it is difficult to distinguish which person of the Godhead is at work in the Old Testament. And this is not a problem, merely an observation. I say it's a problem, but it's not really a problem. It's just an observation. It is difficult to distinguish who's manifesting, who's working in the Old Testament, because the theophanies are Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost is manifested, he's usually not speaking. It's, it's uh, the fire by night, cloud by day. It's the anointing coming upon somebody. And even the Lord said there in Genesis, he said, my spirit will not always strive with mankind. You even see there in Genesis 1, the spirit of the Lord hovered over the faces of the deep. And God said, the mighty one said, anyway, you just, everywhere you look, you see this, but we're trying to figure out what do we do with everything we're seeing. Numerous Old Testament stories readily distinguish between God acting versus his spirit moving, but finding the distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not as easy before the Gospels as it is during and after them. And we'll, we'll see that readily apparent as we move forward with these lessons. From the Gospels forward, it's very easy to distinguish Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, there are several Old Testament passages that distinguish between the Father and the Son. These verses are generally prophetic in nature, foretelling, foretelling the messianic assignment. That should be expected. If we're prophesying about the son dying, there's going to be all of a sudden an instant uh, distinction between the father and the son. Because, and again, I don't know if this is labeled a heresy, the Trinity, each member has a different role in the affairs of mankind. You have the grace gifts of the Father in Romans 12. You have the ministry gifts of the Son in Ephesians 4. And you have the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So even in that, there's dis distinctions of what God is doing through his Trinitarian parts, 
person, see, somebody would nail me over that. You feel like this kid that's been whipped, you know, I can't do anything right because the heresy hunters, bless their little hearts, it's miserable when you got to think you're right on everything and your job is, you've been coronated by God to expose where everybody else is wrong. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be in that kind of ministry. There's a distinction when we start to see the Messiah prophesied about. These verses also allude to something called economic subordinationism. And what that means is that there is, I got to hold my breath, is that there is a chain of command in the Trinity. Now wait for it though, because they're still co-equal and they're co-eternal. So we don't necessarily teach subordinationism because they're co-equal. We teach economic subordinationism. That is, they have to be for the purpose of God in the lives of man. Now, some folks would say if you teach subordinationism, you're a heretic. If you teach that the father is over the son, you're a heretic. But didn't Jesus say, I've come to do the will of my father. He sent me, yet learned he obedience. So you've got a plethora of scriptures that teach subordinationism. That is, Jesus was subordinate to the, to the Father. But if you are hardcore, hardline on co-equal, you have to reject that. And so, bless God, it might have been some Baptist theologians came along and said, how about we add a descriptor and we call it economic, that is, in terms of the, the economy of power and dealings with mankind, there has to be a hierarchy to teach us how to submit. If there's a father and a son, well, one is over the other by default. So I don't see a problem with this, but just as soon as I put this perhaps on pod school, somebody will listen to it and want to just light up our Facebook page, which we won't have much longer because Facebook is for immature white women. I don't know if there's been any kingdom built on social media in the last 10 years. All right, let's move on. The son's submission to the father for the purpose of redemption, and maybe that's what we will term economic subordinationism. It is the son's submission to the father for the purpose of redemption. If Hebrews tells us he learned obedience, he was subordinate. Yet, not my will, your will be done. So he had the opportunity to not obey and become insubordinate. I think this is simple, but you get to studying this, you figure out people have gotten PhDs trying to argue about something that doesn't even exist until they argue about it. Psalm 2, verse 7. Here's the first indication that I can find of the Father being distinguished from the Son. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. So here we see the Lord declaring a son. Now, begotten doesn't mean given birth to. That would be heresy. Uh, the Greek from the Septuagint says single of its kind. Uh, the Lord Jesus is the single one of his kind. He is a distinct person from the Father. And yet Psalm 2 indicates there is a father and a son. If the Lord is saying, you are my son, then the Lord instantly becomes the father. This is the first allusion to this. Not illusion like a magician, but illusion. It is alluded to. 
Viewing this psalm from this, this side of Calvary reveals that this is the Father speaking to the Son, and it's quoted in Acts 13.33 as so. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Jehovah said unto my Adonai, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemy thine enemies thy footstool. Now, what does that even mean? But this side of Calvary becomes very clear. Who is speaking here as we understand it, this side of Calvary? The Father. You come and sit here at my right hand. Who is speaking? The Father. Who is being spoken to? The Son. Whose throne is it? It's the Father's. Whose enemies must be crushed? The Son's. So we have a messianic psalm that reveals the Father and the Son, that they are two different persons in the Godhood head. Isaiah 9, verse 6, one of my favorite verses on the Trinity. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. This is the only instance I have found where he is blatantly called the Father. And yet this is all applied to a baby. So how can a baby be the Father and the Counselor and uh, the son, except through the Trinitarian explanation. The Prince of Peace, and I think we covered last week, we underlined counselor because that's the Holy Spirit's assignment, so he's called the counselor. The Everlasting Father, that's the Father, and the Prince of Peace, we know that's the Son. Isaiah 9 clearly established the plurality of the Trinity, but more particularly, it reveals the name and nature of God as the Father. This had never been done yet. Isaiah 9, and but here again, it's a messianic prophecy talking about the Messiah age and the incarnation. By incarnation, incarnation means to come in the flesh, to be incarnate. When you talk theologically of the incarnation, we're not talking about the flower. Those are called carnations. There are bugs, and bugs live incarnations. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about. By incarnation, it's always capitalized. We're dealing with the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first advent, the coming of God wrapped in human flesh to die for us. <laughs> it reveals the name of God and the nature as the Father, yet one son shall be known as all five of these descriptors. One son, one child, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we know that the explanation for that is the doctrine of the Trinity. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Okay, bruise who? This is Isaiah 53. What's the famous prophecy that we Pentecostal faith people like out of Isaiah 53? By his stripes, who can, who stripes? So who's being bruised here? Jesus, no. <laughs> no, not Satan, Jesus. The Bible, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. So who's being bruised? Jesus, because by his stripes we were healed. This whole prophecy is all about the Son. Who's doing the bruising? The Lord, the Father. So here we have another messianic prophecy that indicates the will of God is to crush the Son for us. Okay? We're seeing roles. 
Isaiah 53, 1 through 9, refers to Jesus Christ 30 times through the pronouns of he, him, and his. Just go through there, read the passage, beginning in verse 1. Yet he was despised and rejected. He had no beauty that we should desire of him. Verse 10 continues to talk about him, Jesus. Yet it is the Lord that bruised him and put him to grief. Clearly here the Lord is referring to the Father. So we're making the point that we do begin to see through the prophecies of the Messiah a distinction more clearly of Father, Son, and Spirit. Clearly here the Lord is referring to the Father. The Father revealed through redemption, and that's kind of what we've been marching towards. The person of the Father is primarily revealed to us through the relationship of the Father and Son in the context of the incarnation and our redemption. When the Lord Jesus Christ is made manifest through the first advent, that means the first appearing, uh, and he comes into his ministry, the, his first reference to the father is when he's 13 years old and he tells his parents, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And from that point forward, he's constantly talking about his father, yet he is the son, yet he is the word God made flesh. So it should not surprise us that when we hit the gospels, boom, there's an explosion of understanding and revelation about the Father. It is only logical that with the incarnation of the Son, the role and personage of the Father comes into greater clarity. The book of John speaks of the Father over 120 times. But compare Matthew 44 times. Mark only mentions the Father five times. I have no explanation for that. And Luke mentions the Father 20 times. So what I have from, from here on forward is a list of characteristics that kind of build, if we can tactfully say, the job description of the Father, how we see him interacting with mankind, what he ascribes to himself. And if he ascribes it to himself, we don't have permission to change it. We don't have permission to argue from silence. We don't have permission to say something else when he says something the opposite. So again, remember, as Christians, we build all doctrine on the Bible, and where the Bible is silent, we are silent, and when the Bible, where the Bible is loud, we are very vociferous and loud ourselves. So we understand the Father's recognized as God. Let me back up and say this. In all my studies I've been doing for these lessons, <laughs> two major theological commentaries that are very well respected, when it gets, they all start the Trinitarian commentaries off with the Father, and they all kind of cop out on me. And they all say, since the Father is so clearly understood, we will move on to the Son. No, he's not. He's not clearly understood because he's not appeared to anybody. How, how come all these smart people have maybe a paragraph, four or five sentences long, and then say, well, let us move on to the Son. And they have 30 pages on the Son and 30 pages on the Holy Spirit, but the Father gets five sentences in a paragraph. I, I think maybe they're kind of afraid to tiptoe near that water too because how do we handle this? So why they all back up and say, it's a mystery. <laughs> we, it does not yet appear what we shall become, but we know that when we see him face to face, we'll be like him. And we'll just talk about it then. Until then, we'll give the Father five sentences so that we're not labeled heretics. <laughs> the Father's recognized as God. John 6, 27 is the first use of the term God the Father, and it occurs a total of 13 times in the New Testament. That's it. But to us there is but one God, the Father. So we know we worship Him. He's recognized as God. 
And then 1 Peter 1-2 says, We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so we see that the Father is certainly recognized as God. If we can tactfully and tiptoeing around being labeled a heretic, say it, God the Father, though He manifests as His Spirit and is the Spirit, through His Son, He seems to be the top of the totem pole. And I only cautiously say that because I know of all the arguments against that statement. And yet we build our understanding on doctrine, on Scripture. The Father's role in the atonement. He is the sender. So if He's the sender, is He not in charge? Yet they're still co-equal. He is the sender. And I think what maybe shocks us is that He didn't just send the Son, which we know He did that. He also sent the Holy Spirit. He is the one that sends the Holy Spirit. Now there's two, there may be a third verse that Jesus implies that he'll send the Holy Spirit, but seven or eight say the Father, the promise of the Father, the promise which the Father will send you. If you know being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will my Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? The scriptural weight is against the Son sending the Holy Spirit, though we know he's our Holy Ghost baptizer. All scriptures imply or state clearly the Father sends the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm covering these so we see the role of the Father. If he sends his spirit, then his spirit is also subject to him. That's what Jesus Christ taught. The, Father, the, the Holy Spirit will not speak of himself, but whatever I revealed to him, that shall he say, share with you. So the Father sent Jesus. The Father sent the Holy Ghost. And there you have plenty of scriptures you can go and look at. Other attributes of the Father, the Father's worship. John chapter 4, Jesus taught the Samaritan woman, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Uh, spirit is lowercase there, but we could uppercase it and make it the Holy Spirit. And who is the word of truth but Jesus? You could make an argument that even there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is taught at the woman with the well. At the, well. the Father seeketh some to worship him to worship him in spirit that is with the help of the Holy Spirit and by the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ I don't think that would be a theological stretch the father has committed all judgment to the son so the Lord God the father is not necessarily a righteous judge scripture says over and over again the son is the righteous judge pretty cut and dry he's called the father of lights and I'm not sure if anybody knows exactly what that means. <laughs> what does it mean to be the father of lights? I have no interpretation for you, nor have I ever seen or heard one. He is the father of spirits. I understand that. He breathes spirit into every conceived child because before he formed us in our mother's womb, he knew us. He breathes that essence of himself, a personality, a person into the conceived human being that science calls a fetus at that point it's just a double cell with a spark of life he is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the earth he's the father of spirits one of my pastors once said and I like what he said he said uh, if my mom and dad didn't ever conceive me I'd have been born into some other body and God to use that body just like he uses this body and that's a very profound notion because you the real you is not your flesh and blood body with your DNA and your last name God, God clears all that up when we get a new body, which has none of, none of mama's DNA, and we get a better name than the one you're trying to outrun. Because the real you is the spirit that he breathed into that baby 
that had to be born again with the destiny of God and the life of Christ. He's the Father's Spirit. All things are of the Father. Now this is where we start to really dissect, and I'm not, well, some of you don't know anything, so you won't disagree at all. Others, I, we know four things about the Trinity, not much at all. And those that seem to be heresy hunters with the Trinity, it seems to be all they know because they don't know anything else. The Bible says very clearly in Romans eleven thirty six, of the Father, through him and to him are all things. Of him, and it makes a distinction, the Father. Of him, through him, and to him, to him are all things. All things exist for the Father, according to 1 Corinthians 8. This verse contrasts for the Father with the Lord Jesus Christ, where it says, by whom are all things. So by Jesus are all things, but for the Father are all things. Because Jesus is the word spoken, and the word spoken created everything, but everything was created for the Father. But without him, there was not anything made that was made, but all things that were made were made for the Father, but they were made by the Son, and it was the Holy Spirit that brought it all to pass. <laughs> It's just a big mystery. <laughs> Hopefully we can hit five or six things we might know about the Trinity in the next couple weeks because right now we're still kind of hovering at not much at all. <laughs> we are called according to the Father's purpose, not even the Son's purpose and not the Holy Spirit's purpose. We're called according to the purpose of the, of the Father. Romans eight twenty eight. For all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord that are called according to His purpose. The Father knows all things. Only the Father knows the day of Christ's return. Now think about that. That means there's something Jesus doesn't know. But he's eternal. Oh, I don't even know if I want to tiptoe into that water. If there is one thing Jesus doesn't know, is he omnipotent? We say yes. But there's one thing he doesn't know. He doesn't know when he's being sent again because it's not been revealed to him by his Father. But we don't deny his deity or his Trinitarian person. But he said himself, no man knows not even the angels or the Son. It's quiet. Like, I don't know if I want to know anything about the Trinity. <laughs> I was happy in my ignorant tongue-talking bliss. I just love my Bible. I just love my Bible. Well, you do better to open it and read it rather than just hug on it all the time. <laughs> We're not saying Christ is not omnipotent, but he said even Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour of his own return, Mark 13, 32. And we've been chosen by the foreknowledge of the Father, not the foreknowledge of the Son or the Holy Ghost, but we make the theological argument they are three persons in one substance or essence. So certainly they share omnipotence. Just <laughs> how the Father can withhold a, a, a date from the Son and Christ retain his deity. But then again, how can God take on him the form of a babe, eat food, have to use the bathroom, go through puberty? 
have to bleed. And this is what our scriptures deal with. The, will, uh, the Father wills all things. Jesus was about his Father's business. And so we point this out because it is the Father, the scriptures are very clear, it is the Father that has set the master plan. And it is the Father that wills all things. Jesus was about his Father's business. Jesus said clearly, I don't come to do my own thing. Hebrews 10.7 says, in the book of the law it's written to me, I have, according to your word, I've come to do thy will, O God. God reveals truth unto babes as it seems good to him. Jesus sought the will of his, uh, of, his, of his father. Jesus willed that Jesus should lose no one. Pardon my typos. I finished this about midnight last night. The father has planned the times and the seasons or placed the times and seasons in his own power. That would go back to Jesus doesn't even know when, some, when, when his own return will come. The Father has placed the times and the seasons in his own personal power or authority. Jesus was delivered up by the determined plan and foreknowledge of the Father. We have been predestinated by the will of the Father to be conformed to the image of his Son. So even our predestination is not according to Jesus, but according to the Father but what we are predestinated to be is conformed to the image of the Son, not the image of the Father. But Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to obey the will of the Father according to Hebrews 10.7. And it is the Father that forgives, not Jesus. I struggle with that one myself. Not the forgiving part, but... But the scriptures say in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, we must practice forgiveness in order for the Father to forgive us. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ephesians 4, 32 says, God forgives for Christ's sake. Forgive even as your Father hath forgiven you for Christ's sake. All right, so we're all clear on all this. <laughs> Perfectly not. Now I'm not sure what to believe. And yet all we can do is look at what the scriptures say. And the good news is, if you don't pass the test in this life, you get to spend all of eternity with him asking questions. Though we can't ask questions now and he can reveal more to us. Like, like the commentator said, uh, it is such a divine mystery, the gem and center of all divine mysteries, we would no more endeavor to apply logical formulas to this than we would to try to place the Pacific Ocean in a teacup. All we are given in the scriptures are little windows here and little windows there and little windows here. And it will always remain a divine mystery because they are eternally co-separate and co-equal. And yet we have a, a, a dispensation of time called the ages to come that has all but completely been hidden from us because we can't even get some people to come to Sunday school. So let's look at more Trinity scriptures real quick with what time we have left. We didn't cover these last week, but as I study, I find more and they're worth sharing. Genesis 3:22, And the Lord Elohim said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, plural, to know good and evil. Genesis 11:7, Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Notice the plural of the deity, the Godhead, talking about the Tower of Babel. 
Isaiah 6, 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord Adonai, plural, masters, saying, Whom shall I, singular, send, and whom shall go for us, plural? Then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Holy Ghost, Father, Son. Matthew 28, 19. The baptism formula, go, there, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. That's called the apostolic uh, benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost. Son, Father, Spirit. Now, here's another theological caveat to counter hardcore subordinationism is that here the son is put over the father. He's mentioned first. Uh, we have another passage. Ephesians 4 puts the Holy Spirit first. So though we have verses that indicate the father is the chief architect, if I can use that term, and I've, all these things make me nervous saying them. We see here that it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that's mentioned first in the apostolic benediction. But in Ephesians, it's one spirit mentioned first. Ephesians 4.46, there's one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. There the Father's mentioned last. Don't you love the perfect balance of the scriptures in relating this doctrine? Ephesians 5.18 be not drunk with wine, whereas in excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have the Trinity, Jude 20, 21. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So there are just seven, eight, more Trinitarian passages. <sighs> and I am actually physically exhausted now. Next week is the Lord Jesus. That's going to be so much easier because he has revealed himself to us so much more clearly. And though if we see him, we see the Father. If you have any bone to pick with me, go study for yourself. Most of you are like, oh, okay, we'll just uh, file that curriculum away. May God continue to grant us wisdom and understanding as we seek to know him and his divine nature. Amen.